Hi, and welcome back to the Mindful Sport Performance Podcast. I'm Dr. Keith Kaufman. I'm Dr. Tim Pinot. And we are very excited to be joined today by not one, but two wonderful guests, uh, Dr. Adam Wright and Dr. Nick Holton. Um, and I mentioned to them before we started recording, they both have incredibly impressive bios. I had to condense these or else we'd be talking about their bios for most of the episode. But just to give uh, our listeners a quick introduction, uh, Dr. Adam Wright is a peak performance coach who supports a broad range of performers from elite high school, collegiate and professional athletes to Fortune 400 corporate leaders, professionals in military and law enforcement, and creatives from the entertainment world. Adam's work is dedicated to exploring how individuals and teams can leverage and build their cognitive skills, emotional intelligence, and physical capacities to flourish professionally and personally. Adam is the founder of Arete Fitness and Performance Training, Inc., and co-founder of the Anti-Fragile Academy, LLC, and Elevate Performance Group, LLC. He currently serves as the Director of Mental Skills Training for the Washington Nationals Major League Baseball team and Senior Mental Skills Consultant at Performance Optimal Health Physical Therapy and Rehabilitation Clinics. His previous roles include Director of Mental Conditioning for the Puerto Rico Lacrosse Women's Team, an adjunct psychology and exercise science professor at several colleges. Dr. Nick Holton is an international. That, hold on, that's the condensed version. That's, that's the, the condensed. condensed that's there's, about, there's three more pages. Geez, that. Adam, man, Adam, Adam, I got to get on okay? Adam's level. Jeez. Did I do okay? I, I'm not lying. I probably took about 10 minutes cutting and pasting. And I did not do that. I blame that on the PR people. <laughs> I take no responsibility. All right, I need a drink of water here before I start introducing. Yeah, I don't blame you. Um, yeah. Take it, take a breath, take a breath. <laughs> just <laughs> shows you how Nick, old I am. <laughs> yeah, you just have a lot of experience. It's impressive. <laughs> um, Dr. Nick Holton is an international consultant, coach, speaker, and author who has worked with professional and collegiate athletes, Fortune 500 business leaders, as well as educators and thought leaders from around the world. His work focuses on human flourishing or the scientific research that supports optimal functioning, a synergistic development of both peak performance and overall well-being and satisfaction. Nick works with a wide range of individuals and organizations, but is most passionate about bringing the science of human flourishing to young people and planting seeds of peak potential for future generations. His current roles and projects include consulting and co-directing the human flourishing efforts at the Shipley School, co-hosting Flourish FM, and running the Anti-Fragile Athlete, a startup that is focused on flourishing in elite athletics and coaching executives and entrepreneurs with the Flow Research Collective. Whew, all right. Did I do okay? Sounds great, yep. All I'm right, sure. awesome. Yeah. Um, so again, it, we are really excited to have you guys here. Obviously from these bios, you, you can hear how accomplished you both are and your expertise and what you'll bring to this conversation. So super psyched to pick your brains and, and get into this. Uh, but before we do, as, as we often like to begin our episodes, we're going to just do a brief mental practice that Tim is going to lead us in today, just to orient us to the space and, and having the conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Keith. And thank you both for being here. Yeah. I'm really looking forward to this, this conversation. Um, you know, let's, let's get settled in. Yeah. And this, this exercise really is about, um, kind of inviting in a feeling of being settled. And we're going to do that kind of actively with a little bit of, of guided tension. 
So for anyone listening at home, I'm going to encourage you to close your eyes for this. If you are in a situation where that's not available to you, maybe do this later. Don't do this while you're driving. Um, But if you can, let your eyes close. Turn your attention inward. First thing I want to ask you to do is check in with your posture. We spend a lot of our time hunching. So you can roll your shoulders up and back and then feel your shoulder blades float down your spine, leaving an open chest, tall spine. In fact, on your next few inhales, even imagine as if the oxygen you're taking in is is expanding between each vertebrae. And sitting here with your breath, I want to invite you to just check in with the tension you might be holding in your upper body, particularly your shoulders, your jaw, chest. Now I want you to invite in more tension. Bring your shoulders up to your ears. Try to get them as close as possible. Feel your traps become tight. Once your shoulders are as high as possible, flex your biceps. Bring your hands up to your shoulders as if you're at the top of a bicep curl. Really squeeze those muscles and then make fists and pull your fists down towards your biceps so you can feel the tension now through your forearms, your shoulders, your biceps, your forearms, into your fingers, perhaps even across your chest, feel that tension, really squeeze. And then one muscle group at a time on your next exhale, keeping all the other tension, let your shoulders drop. On your next exhale, keeping the tension in your fists, let your biceps relax as your forearms travel to your thigh. Forearms still tense, fists still still curled. And now on your next exhale, unfurl your fingers, releasing all of the tension. And over these next few breaths, imagine that you are intentionally breathing into these muscles, the traps, biceps, forearm, oxygenating these muscles and inviting them to let go. As if with each exhale, your shoulders can continue to drop a little further. Your fingers can let go a little more. There's no effort. There's no tension. There's no trying. Just be.
Now I can get ready to bring this exercise to a close. You can wiggle your fingers and your toes, feel some gentle movement come back into your body. If it feels good, you can take a few full deep breaths. And when you feel ready, sit back, open your eyes. Thanks, Tim. Appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah. My shoulders were feeling tense before this, so I feel like I could use a, a little relaxation. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciated that, too. I've noticed a lot of shoulder tension in the last couple of days, so that, that hit the spot for me as well. Um, so, yeah. So, I, 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 as I said, we like to do these to kind of just make the space and slow down from where we're coming from. Uh, I imagine you guys uh, probably have pretty busy days going on. And so hopefully this kind of gets us centered and ready to chat. And um, I know we were joking before about, about your bios and all the impressive stuff. And I guess the place I wanted to start um, was kind of looking at your bios and thinking, well, gosh, I've got lots of questions for you both individually. But the one thing that's really strong through both of your bios is, is the idea of human flourishing. And maybe just to kind of kick it to you guys to talk about that a little bit, um, you know, how you define human flourishing, the nature of your work, um, you know, what, what that looks like in the space that you all are in. Well, I mean, I think, you know, when you try to define or conceptualize a term like flourishing, there's a lot of different directions you can go, right? And I don't, I don't want to get too nerdy and nuanced with the science here. So I'll keep it kind of simple and just say, for me, I, I think it's a synergy between performing optimally in areas and towards things that are meaningful, right? Um, and generally being well or feeling well or mentally healthy. I also think it's really important, and this is where, you know, Adam and I's work, I think, comes together to sometimes talk about what it is not to just kind of sort of like, you know, set aside some common myths when you hear a term like flourishing. It is not um, perpetual pleasantness, right? It is a preponderance of pleasantness, but it's not perpetual. It's not this sort of like everlasting thing. And there is actually a place for the utility um of unpleasantness as well, like in psychological health and, and skill development and growth and self-actualization and things like that. But generally like feeling pretty good and doing pretty well in the things we care about, right? So that, you know, a lot of the metrics that you see, if it's a scale out of out of 10, right? You, you're mostly dialing in at a seven or an eight. Very few people are 10 out of 10s, right? Um, but, but more often than not, you feel like life's going pretty well. It's fulfilling, right? You're feeling good, performing optimally. I, I, to, pig, to piggyback on that, I think it, you know, often what we see uh, with our athletes is we measure them by their performance. Just because yeah. they're performing well in the field, there's an assumption that's made that they're performing well off the field. Uh, and that may be the case some of the time, but often it's not. Yeah. And I think that's the holistic and integrated perspective we need to take when dealing with our athletes and not just, you know, they're human beings, not just human performings. So uh, I think that has to be encompassed, you know, in some way it has to be part of that definition when it comes to our applied work. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I love hearing you guys talk about that. I, I, cause I feel like so often I feel like athletes are presented with the choice. You can perform well 
or you can be happy, you know, or like or actually the route to happiness is performing well. And so if you're unhappy, it's because you're not performing well. So just focus on performing well. And I, I, we've even had people guests on the podcast, athletes, former Olympians who, who, who would have these terrible, painful stories of going to a coach and being like, I think I have an eating disorder. And they say, well, that's the price of a gold medal. Mm-hmm. Oh, and it's like so out of balance, so out of whack. So I love this, this, this concept of flourishing and the wholeness of it. Absolutely. The space that we all seem to share, right? Like, like the mindfulness work that we do is, I guess, Tim, is it fair to say we, we see mindfulness as possibly a pathway to flourishing, Yes. right? By strengthening mindfulness skills, it might make flourishing more accessible or something that we can, we can achieve more readily. And, um, you know, my understanding is that you guys don't work as much specifically in the mindfulness space, but I guess I'm curious like what kinds of techniques, what kinds of approaches, like how do you conceptualize building flourishing, turning this into a tangible thing for athletes? Yeah, I mean, I, we can kind of connect, you know, to the the first question here a little bit. So if you took um, like the two most common measures of human flourishing, right, and kind of smashed them together, you'd see some similarities, you'd see a lot of differences, but you'd come out with like eight to 10 ingredients, Okay. If you think of each of those sort of ingredients as like an end in and of itself, right, and a significant contributor to human flourishing. So we're talking about pleasant emotion. We're talking about meaning and purpose. We're talking about positive relationships, vitality, right, all that. Every single one of those ingredients is going to be more accessible and, dare I say, even more controllable if you have skills in mindfulness, if you have the ability to catch thoughts catch emotions, be aware of distinctions between past and present, think about explanatory style, notice mindset, catch yourself in habit loops, positive or negative. That's all connected to attentiveness to the moment, right? So to me, it's exactly what you described. It is a crucial pathway to innate, that can potentially enable everything else that we talk about in a flourishing life. Yeah, I, I think if, if we look at what we try to do in this world of, you know, non-clinical performance enhancement, right? So um, what what I would say probably to quote, you know, Stephen Hayes is that our goal is to, to, to foster more emotional, you know, regulation so that our clients have more psychological flexibility. And if that's going to happen, it has to start with awareness and mindfulness. Before, right before we got on this call, I was with a you know major league pitcher who's going through some some rehab for Tommy John surgery, and effectively the session was based upon noticing, noticing. And right now there's a lot of interception where he's noticing what's going internally, and it's like okay, well how now now that we're progressing through this process, and you're throwing at 90 feet, how can we start with exteroception? How can now can we start forgetting about what's happening internally and just executing externally and focusing on the target in front of us? Right. But without without mastering this idea of mindful attention, um, I, d- I don't even think we could begin doing what we're doing. We're just basically teaching skills that have no cognitive glue. And I think given, you know, Adam and I, I think, have various areas of expertise. Instruction in formal meditative practices is not one of those areas. Right. So to answer your question more directly, um, we will farm out to other tools, other courses, other experts, but really what we're doing is giving sort of the most basic practices in two areas. Cause we talk about a framework that includes when you think about flourishing or anti-fragility, it can start top down, right? So sort of cognitively, it can go bottom up. So affectively, 
and it can be outside in ecosystemically, right? So um, we try to train some mindfulness around those sorts of things. Like top down is really what Adam just said, just noticing thinking, noticing inner dialogue, noticing patterns and beliefs and trying to just kind of, you know, tag those and identify them and be more aware of them as a foundational level, right? But then for the bottom up, we would do that affectively through something simple like consistent body scanning, right? And increasing levels of nuance and difficulty around body scanning to get athletes more aware of some of their initial affective responses. Like what happens if your heart starts to accelerate and you get sweaty palms before you've stopped to think, oh, I'm nervous. Oh, I'm afraid, right? How might you use those as cues as well, right? So it's, it's pretty introductory stuff. And then, and then we rely on other experts to do some of that training for us. But yeah, right. Like you're saying, these um, foundational skills, right? The, the filter through which the athletes are going to be experiencing, right? Their, their performance, their ups and downs, their thoughts and feelings, right? Like there's, right. We need to like get in there and, and, and help them figure out like what their filter is doing and how it's maybe distorting some of the things, adding on some of like the, the extra pressures, the judgments, the expectations, you know, and so that's a direction that we often go in, in our, in our work, you know, we're kind of establishing the same kind of foundation, trying to, trying to enhance this capacity to, to not just be aware, but to be non-judgmentally aware. Cause if you get, you can be hyper aware of something and it makes you really anxious, right? If you can't uh, bring that acceptance to bear. Uh, and so one of the ways that we really kind of like open that door for athletes is to talk about the ways that they judge themselves or their performance, the expectations that they kind of maybe carry into an experience and then creates the judgments. Do you find that in your work, you're also talking to, to your clients about these kinds of like judgments and expectations? I mean, cause that feels so like in the mindfulness lane. Um, so I'm curious if that it feels relevant for flourishing too. What we're trying to do in our programming, uh, particularly like in the Anti-Fragile Academy and some of the, you know, the, the psychoeducation products that we do is we're leveraging it on evidence-based systems. So, you know, and by the way, uh, you know, your mindfulness sport performance enhancement was on my list to do. I keep meaning to go through your program. I read yeah. your book years ago. Uh, Keith, I, I met you actually at an Ask Conference many years ago when you first published that book. What was that like 2017 or something? Yeah. 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 So, but using, you know, I, I started my doctor work on Frank Gardner using his mindfulness acceptance commitment approach, using ACT and, and understanding these in, in such a way. It's like, okay, why do you have to be, in most cases, why does something have to go wrong before you speak to a cl clinician, before you learn these techniques and skills, right? These are life skills. Yeah. And the foundation of our program is to borrow from these techniques and, and, and you know, and to, to offer them to our clients before there is something that's, you know, so to speak, you know, where they meet a diagnostic criteria, right? Just life adversity, sport adversity, right? So it is a foundation in, in what we do. And I think there's another element too, just to throw this on top is sometimes I worry in the work that we do, we focus too much on the individual personal qualities. So we know what our desired outcomes are. We, we know how individuals, we want them to act and be in the world. And we teach them certain psychological skills to help them get there. And we have to understand their personal characteristics, like what makes them unique. And you know, because for the worst thing I did when I came out with a PhD is just threw every theory I had and every technique to every client I met. I said, like, "Why is this working?" <laughs> I forgot that there was actually an individual there, right? So, so, but, but the other important thing is like, what does that environment look like in which they operate? You know, and and I think there are some great scholars out there doing some great work. 
um, like like um, Dr. Sakar, uh, who's talking about these facilitative environments, these kind of environments that really do have high challenge expectations, but give very high support structuring around them. Mm -hmm. Right? No, yeah. When obviously when a flower dies, we don't look at the petal and say, "What's wrong with this petal?" What do you do? You say, "Hmm." Maybe I should change the soil. Maybe the flower's not getting nourishment. Maybe not enough sun. Maybe it needs more water. Why do we immediately look for the, at the individual when something goes wrong? Mm -hmm. Right. So go ahead, Nick. What were you going to add to that? No, I think that's well said. I mean, that's, you know, we want to hit all these different areas because we think they all play a part. They all play a role, right? So in terms of the, the judgment piece, um, and Adam just sort of brought it up there, I think it would, for me, depend what we mean by non-judgment and curiosity and openness. I guess I would probably say not to be open and curious and not judge initially or not judge immediately as being good or bad, right? But to stay open to an experience. And the reason I would maybe amend that a little bit is part of what we're doing with our athletes, especially is trying to build up, you know, what we refer to as anti-fragility, kind of this nod to uh, Nassim Taleb, right? But um, what that requires is developing what Todd Cashin and others would call distress tolerance, right? The ability to sort of navigate unpleasantness, okay? Mm -hmm. But at the same time, do we want somebody to always navigate unpleasantness to the point where you know, they're never judging anything as being unhealthy, right? And kind of going over the edge. So we're trying to help people understand, all right, yes, emotions are not necessarily positive or negative, right? That experience is not necessarily positive or negative, but there is an objective difference between safe and unsafe at the same time, right? And develop some of the cognitive and affective skills to navigate those situations and process them so they can take values aligned action right as a consequence of those it's a, it's a great point because i think particularly when we talk about resilience um we have to realize that it's not simply about placing your well-being and your values at risk but grinning variant and noticing it and just moving on right it's not denying it and just can keep pushing right. pushing right so i sometimes i worry that single-minded focus on performing and nothing else um gets us into trouble so that that, that self-compassionate aspect has to come into this awareness process. Yeah, we talk about that so much. Um, kind of connected to that, like the whole whole human, whole athlete, right? Mm -hmm. That you know, you know, we 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 use the word choice a lot. That like mindful awareness gives you choices. And yeah, to your to your point about the kind of the subjective difference between healthy and unhealthy, right? Like we want we want there to be this kind of like internal source of wisdom that if you're paying attention to like oh when i'm just like doom scrolling on my phone and i tell myself oh i just need to relax and then when i actually look at what's happening in my body and i feel like oh i'm getting tense and this is stressing me out it's not actually relaxing me it's like oh i can make a choice and not that there's a right or wrong i shouldn't be on my phone or i should be on my phone but just that in this moment it's not doing the thing i want it to Right. Mm -hmm. And I need to be aware of that so I can make the choice that is going to facilitate my goals. Because if I want to perform well, right. it does, it, it, it's a good idea for me to reduce stress in other areas of my life. Yes. And you see how it all connects. Yeah. And I think that's a really important point because I, I just, whenever I talk about what it's meditation or just mindfulness more generally, I always feel like it's sort of been 
um, poorly branded in some ways, or maybe branded too heavily in one direction, which is like when you, when like, think about the app names, right? Calm, Headspace, (laughs) right? What do those read? Those read like you only use mindfulness to take you from like fight, flight, or freeze to rest and digest, right? Like it really only serves one function. And to me, like what gets missed in a lot of that is the increased ability to self-regulate, right? So like this, ha- okay, sure. So the affective piece, like it's awesome that it could help you calm or process unpleasant emotion or whatever it might be, but it also is going to help you with dopamine itchiness. It's also going to help you with navigate distraction. It's going to help you surf those urges that make or break habits, right? It's going to help you stay more focused. So I just think there's a lot of like cognitive benefits that get missed out in the in this conversation as well. I was just thinking the other piece in this. First, I was thinking about how we define, you know, these the problems with these terms like resilience and mindfulness, right, is an operational definition. And as academics, we know how important that is. But at this, you know, at the same time, in just in daily living, we need we need to know we're talking about the same thing. And I, I've always been attracted to the Longarian, you know, no longer's concept of mindfulness, mm-hmm. right? The, you know, it, it just kind of gets. She's just, there's something about her way that's very um, appealing to me because it's just gets to the point. You know, it's a process of paying attention on purpose in the present moment. Yeah, we're being aware of novelty in our experience and situations and we're perceiving you know, these differences in context and so forth. But at the same time, it's, it's very secular to me, right? And, and then the other part to that was there has to be something around all of this, which ACT does so well, to address values, because once we do use these awareness skills, these mindfulness skills, often we need to move with courageous action based upon value-based goals, right? And if that's not set in place, if those priorities aren't set in place and a person doesn't know himself well enough in terms of what they want and need, we get stuck. Yeah. No, I had two different sessions today with individual clients, not sport related, but we we're talking exactly about this, about like finding your core values and how you can use those to like actually inform the decisions you make, especially when it's a tough decision. And I'm sorry, I started to speak over you uh, for a moment there, Adam. I, I think we're, you know, talking about this whole idea of branding, right? And talking about how, you know, these concepts, like how, how do we get them to resonate with the folks that we work with? And, and here it's, I mean, you guys have sort of alluded to, um, you know, to, to your startup a little bit, and, and maybe this is a good opportunity to kind of talk about specifically what it is, you know, what, what exactly you offer and how, I mean, both of you work with very high level folks and, and how do you bring these ideas to them in a way that they can digest, you know, cause that, that's something, one of my favorite questions I ask the guests on our podcast, cause that's something we struggle with all the time, right? We've got all these great ideas, but how do you get people to want to do it? <laughs> so curious about that. That's the question. Do you want to <laughs> jump in first, Adam? I'm going to, uh, uh, this is just going to be a quick kind of non sequitur, but um, in the in the very famous book, The Mental Game of ba- Baseball, right? I, I work in baseball. Uh, and one of the legends in our field, arguably, he is the man who brought baseball into psychology in the modern age, right? We can go back to Coleman Griffith, Griffith so forth, but in the modern age is Har- Harvey Dorfman. And he used to say you need, he needs to do three things to do this job, right? And in terms of branding and how we present what we do to our, our athletes and our performers. So number one, yeah, obviously, you need to know psychology. You need to know what's going on in somebody's head to some degree, right? Number two, you have to be a good communicator. You mm-hmm. can't just stay in this academic mode, right? You have to meet people where they are and break down complex topics in ways that are digestible and actionable. But last, you got to know the game. 
you can't just be this person that's giving these theories out of you know, out of the air. You got to know what it feels like to be there. There has to be something in that shared lived experience and knowing what it's like to. And if you put those things, obviously Harvey showed us, if you put those three together, you can really make an impact with your clients. I'm historically an educator. So I spent a lot of time in middle schools, high schools, public, independent, private, right? You name it, kind of up and down the board. And so like I'm used to working with populations that aren't necessarily interested, right? Your question was like, how do you get them to want to learn it or do it? Um, by the time I sort of left the classroom more full time, I was teaching almost exclusively electives, which was a vastly superior experience. Well, why? <laughs> Choice. Yeah. But more specifically than that, and here's where you get into the ed literature a little bit, like uh, choice is often sort of referred to as, as synonymous with autonomy. But in some of the ed literature, autonomy means something slightly different. It's internalization, or it can mean internalization. What does that refer to? Just alignment. Like maybe I'm not choosing to do, with it, do this, but I'm on board with it. It's values aligned, like Adam's talking about, right? Doesn't mean I elected to, but I'm, I'm, cool. I'm in it, right? For sort of the, the self-concordant reasons. Um, we're trying to do that with our system and our model. And Adam often uses this phrase like Trojan horse in life skills for navigating adversity, building well-being, mindfulness, gratitude, discipline, willpower, habit management, right? The whole nine yards um, to accomplish that aim, right? No, I, and it comes down to this idea now. We we fell in love with this concept of anti-fragility, right? And I, I think that's part, part of the, the the model that we're trying to create is is like, the, does that resonate with people in a meaningful way, in a way that perhaps you know, obviously we're going to make a distinction beyond going beyond resilience in the sense of um, you know these characteristics that that allow systems inorganic and organic to thrive in the face of disorder, chaos, and adversity. But, you know, when we talk about resilience, it's one thing. When we talk about a hydra, <laughs> and, and, you know, it just, it seems to resonate with our, with our clients in a different way. So we may be all talking about similar things. The question is, does it, does it resonate and does it spark interest in the sense that tell me, you know, they want to know more. Yeah. Right? I'm not talking at them. They're saying that they want to draw information out of us. And it is branding. It is marketing to some degree. Yeah. Well, I've always, I've said this a number of times, probably on the podcast, but like, I always feel like being a mindfulness teacher is just, it's saying the same thing, but like a thousand different ways until you find the way that resonates with the person. And yeah. And it really is like, it, it does feel like we are talking about such similar things and maybe using a little bit different language here and there, but um, really trying to open up an athlete or client to just having a new experience. And I think it's hard when they come in with this stigma around like, well, I think mental health and anything related to it in general, but like, like Nick, like you were talking about this, like the Mick mindfulness, you know, the um, or a, a, a mindfulness teacher of mine uh, talks about it. Like um, so that, you know, there's mushrooming and there's blossoming. And right now mindfulness is mushrooming. Um, and it's uncontrolled, right? And it's and it, I think there are there are people who are, are getting a distorted view of it, and and certainly the athletes that we meet with come with that. One of the first things we have to explain is mindfulness is not a relaxation exercise. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it yeah. may induce relaxation sometimes, 
but that's not the point, right? Like it's not about clearing your head so you have no thoughts, you know, like that people have this image in their mind. So there is a little bit of like education that needs to be done, some correction. Uh, but I, for me, it's then been like about the experience, you know, it's like I, to, to find the thing that gets them curious, maybe I can say something, you know, but it's going to be, I can just get them to try meditating for a couple of weeks, you know, and suddenly they realize like, Oh, I'm sleeping better or like, Oh, I'm, I'm paying more attention in class. I'm not as anxious for exams. It's like, ah, there's the hook. You had an experience, right? Like maybe you're curious now. I, I think that experience is essential. I think what I do a great deal with the teams is I bring in the science because science creates safety. Sure. Sometimes experience is overwhelming. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so when I talk about Richie Davidson's work around meditation and what what's happening there and I get into the brain science, I see a peak. Hmm, this is interesting. Yeah. Right. So, so now, now there's not, we're not making a distinction between what you're doing in the weight room, and what you're doing in my, my room, right. It's just all strength training, but we're strength training in, in, in different ways. You know, one, your muscles and one, your brain. And that way of selling it seems to be much, you know, it's non-threatening. And we talk about psychological safety. That's part of it. You know, if you want people to be vulnerable, you have to create a situation and, and verbiage and a way of communicating that makes them feel safe. Yeah. Science does that in an interesting way. <laughs> and you can concretize that too, you know, just kind of closing that loop on like, you know, what do you do to make it interesting and Trojan horse these skills in? Well, like when you're working with athletes and they want to be better at their sport, right? And, and they're sitting there like, let's take a really common problem for like collegiate athletes we work with. Okay, they should, if they put in an extra 30, 45, 60 minutes, let's call it a, a handful of times a week to X skill, they would be immeasurably, immeasurably better, right? But what are they doing? They're spending that time on social media, right? They're getting into the scroll job because they can't control distractions, right? Mm -hmm. Well, when you can like talk to, like Adam just said, a young person, I think, bring that science, but then concretize it and say, okay, mm -hmm. according to X study, your generation is checking your phones 150 times a day, right? 150 times, okay? Take a look. Open, like most of them have iPhones. Take a look, right? And they'll give you their numbers and you kind of have a laugh about it, semi-alarmed by it, right? But then you just kind of do the math. Hey, if you're checking that 150 times a day and every single one of those is one minute, just one minute, that's two and a half hours of your day, Right? And you slice it and you say, okay, if you started practicing mindfulness for five minutes a day, 10 minutes a day, and you could catch even a third of those moments, even half of those moments, would you take a half hour a day? Would you take 45 minutes a day? And then better yet, what would you do with it? Right? So that's what we mean by Trojan horse, like making it applicable, contextualizing it, but then concretizing it as well. So they see like, oh, wow, this can actually have impact because you're not going to get young people. I mean, they're already intrinsically driven for the most part. That's why they're playing the sport. Right. But you've, you've got to do a little bit of that, like dopamine reward piece as well and make sure that when they make the effort, they're getting something from it to start to close that loop and start that cycle. Mm -hmm. Right. There's no way around it. Like that's just the, the way the neurochemistry has to work. I guess what one other and I've, I've been thinking about the best way to articulate this, but especially because when, when you guys were saying earlier about sort of the, the external forces as well and how you take that into account, you know, with with the work that each of you do. Um, you're also dealing not just with high-level athletes or high-level performers, but performers and systems. 
and how you deal not just with the athletes, but with the stakeholders and their expectations and their limits, right? I mean, it's, it's incredibly complicated work. Um, so I, I know this is probably sort of a nuance and at the same time, very vague question, but I'm just sort of curious, like, well, what, what do you do with that? <laughs> I don't think it's vague at all. So let, okay, like, let me give you a little bit of context. And I'm sorry to be over talking, Adam, jump in here. But just again, leaning on my years of experience and doing similar things in schools, kids come through class, right? They learn the concept. They, okay, I'm going to apply this. I'm going to practice this, or I'm going to have a growth mindset or whatever it might be. But then they get a different message in the next class, or their friend makes fun of it, or the parent doesn't support it, or the parent flat out disagrees with it, right? So really, this is where that outside in, that ecosystemic approach, I think, is important. And, and we embed it into the training. It's a part of the curriculum, right? This idea of big potential, thinking about social contagion and the impact of other people on your habits and Pygmalion effect and self all these ways that other people can impact you. But then it's also embedded into our approach, right? We are B2B specifically because we hope to work with entire organizations and multiple stakeholder groups, right? To make the training itself an ecosystem level, right? So a good example would be not just working with young people and providing content and curriculum and coaching, but providing that content curriculum and coaching to their coaches, as well. So that messaging can be more aligned. Coaches understand how to help and be warm demanders and support and navigate in, you know, various kind of affective moments. I think it's, I I think even let's bring it to a granular level. It's, it's complicated. And, and if you work in applied sports psychology, we know how complicated this can be when you're working with a system, because ultimately the question always is, who's my client? Mm. Who's my client? And 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 when it, it and as you know too, if trust isn't established, and and not um, beyond anything else, you're not going to get anywhere, right? And inherently, when you come in and you're hired by an organization, there's a distrust, and rightly so. I would too, if my entire career, I don't I don't know you, you know, you know, a doctor. Who are you? And all of a sudden, I'm going to tell you uh, things that are are could potentially changed my entire career. And how do I know you're not going back to management? How do I know you're not going to tell on me? And I, so I understand you have to respect all of that and you, and you have to work to build trust and the trust is starts regardless of it with, with the individual. Right. And if, and then in like the way I say it, and I talk with coaches and say, okay, well, maybe not everybody's on board, but in the weight room, what can you do now to create a culture that's more safe, that respects vulnerability, that's more supportive like you have control, you are in the trenches. You have more trust than anyone. The strength coaches more than anyone, I think, has the, they have the most trust. Um, what are you doing right now, even in the smallest way? When you sit down, and you talk with one of your one of your athletes, and you ask them how they're doing. Do you pause and actually listen, and do you notice? You know, and do you ask further open questions? It starts at the ground level, and that can often – we say it has to start from – we have to buy in from the top, yes. But what I find is often change starts at the ground level with individuals. Mm-hmm. You know? So I always go in with that mindset, and I think what we're trying to do with an is, is just try to teach that. You know, We want to try to get it anywhere we can because we know this process works. This is what the science tells us, but we have to figure out a way to kind of break the ice. Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned that, Adam. I think that's something that's come up a lot. I don't think so much on the podcast, but in a lot of conversations I've been having recently about sort of how you approach it from an organizational standpoint on the individual level versus the stakeholder level and what are the advantages and disadvantages. I think that's a really 
worthy debate that I think is emerging more and more as applied sports psych is being used more in these high level organizations. On the one hand, it, it makes so much sense. And I, I think this is true to like people out, like I, I know that I'm like in the weeds a little bit with the research or whatever. Um, but yeah, this, this ecological approach, right. This systemic approach, like it just, it's, it, it feels glaringly obvious and yet, it really seems like it's just too heavy of a lift for a lot of these organizations to like want to lean in uh, at that level. And yeah, I don't know. It's like, I've certainly seen, you know, like you're talking about um, the, the, the kind of the dominoes falling, even within I used to work at a college and started working with this one team and like, they're doing really well. And then, you know, Oh, another coach, like, Oh, I want to do that. Another coach, like, Oh, I want to do that. And then suddenly I was running a group for coaches, you know, like, of course that that can totally happen. And oftentimes it feels like that needs to happen, but yeah, there's, I don't know. There's a, there seems to be such resistance from the system, like doing it. Yes. Yes. I, I, you know, for many, I think it's just kind of, it unfortunately becomes a, you know, bureaucratic ticking, you know, the box kind of thing. And as opposed to saying, Hey, are you really interested in creating a high challenge, high support culture where like, where your athletes are literally looking at pressure as an opportunity to perform, not not worrying about this 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 threat and this unrelenting pressure that that there's a fear of failure you know and and we know the cultures that do it well i mean they thrive yeah yeah they, i always say it's like it like our job is to make people perform better, perform better but by the way the way to get there is by feeling better right the idea is optimal performance over time not peak performance in one instance and sometimes mm. i think you know they get stuck in, in thinking that way in very short term. Yeah, that's so well said. Yeah. And I guess it brings us right around full circle to the idea of flourishing, right? I know you said thriving there. You could have very easily said flourishing, I imagine. As yes. A, um, so well, I, I feel like we just scratched the surface here, but but I know we're, we're short on time. I just thank you guys so much for sharing a little bit about your perspectives and your work. And um, I'm sure our listeners, just like me, are, are probably eager to learn more. And, and so... Uh, if you can direct anybody to websites, resources, certainly to learn about your startup, your individual work, please feel free to share anything you're comfortable with. Sure. Yeah. Well, you you can uh, get in touch with either Adam or I individually at our respective websites. Mine's just nickholton.com and Adam, you see yours is? DrAdamWright.com. There you go. And then our uh, our startup, Anti-Fragile Athlete, you can check us out at the AntiFragileAthlete.com. We're on most social as well, not super active there, but you can get in touch with us through the website. And then um, uh, one of you mentioned the the podcast I co was called Flourish FM um, about human flourishing and the science thereof. So check us out over there as well. We appreciate it. Yeah, and where, where can folks find your, your podcast? Where is it available? Basically everywhere, right? So Spotify, Apple, um, you know, all the other sort of, let's say, uh, less name brand services, but you can find it pretty much on all major podcast providers or the website, which is just flourishfmpodcast.com. Great. All right. Well, thank you. And yeah, thanks for venturing on our podcast. Yeah. Um, and I'll just- Thank you guys. <laughs> appreciate you having us. We greatly appreciate it. It's a great conversation. Sure. Um, I will very quickly just let listeners or remind listeners how to how to they can connect with us. Um, so we are the MSBA Institute. You can connect with us at www.mindfulsportperformance.org. We also have a Facebook page for our institute. 
Um, our podcast has some social media. Our Instagram page is at mindful underscore sport underscore podcast. And we have our companion YouTube channel where we post all of our exercises that start our episodes. So a great free library of exercises if you're looking for that. Uh, so Tim's will be up there from this episode. Um, you're also welcome to connect with me, Dr. Keith Kaufman on Twitter. My handle is at mindful sport doc. Um, and we're always grateful for reviews of our podcast, uh, wherever you find our podcast or for our book, uh, which uh, is again called mindful sport performance enhancement, mental training for athletes and coaches. Uh, and just a quick thank you as well to our producer, Taylor Brown, for all of his amazing work and our colleague, Dr. Carol Glass, for all of her support of the podcast. So uh, again, thank you guys for, for joining us. It was awesome to have this conversation and thank you to everyone who listened. Yep. Our pleasure. Thanks again for having us. Thank you.